One of my daughters is turning 16 in a couple of weeks, and so she's currently studying for her written test for her driver's license. Now, in a teenager's mind, this is one of the most important tests, isn't it? Because if you pass, it opens up new possibilities. Recently, I came across a stack of boxes of COVID tests in a closet. I'm so sorry to remind you of that memory. What an uncomfortable test that was. Sticking that oversized Q-tip up your nose until you cried. It was horrible. My husband's company required him to take the test every Monday for over a year. A test failure meant isolation, disappointment, and for many caused fear. Fear that life as they knew it was about to change. The purpose of any test is to measure the quality, the skill, the knowledge, or the resolve of someone. In life, we face many tests. Some for education or a job, others for our health or our well-being. And we test each other, evaluating the quality of our relationships. Tests are designed to see if we measure up. Now, none of these tests that I've mentioned, none would compare to what I would declare the most rigorous test ever given in all of history. Turn over to the first book of the Bible. We're going to begin in Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22, verse 1 says, Sometime later, God tested Abraham. Now that line just brings to mind so many questions. Did God only test the patriarch Abraham because he was the one who he was going to make a covenant with? Did God test other people in the Bible? Why would God test his people? And if he did test people in the Bible, does he still test people today? And would he ever test us in the same way that he tested Abraham? Okay, one thing at a time. Let's begin with looking at who God tested, Abraham. He is the one that God made the covenant with. It's mentioned in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. It says, The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now these verses do not actually begin with the words, God tested Abram, but it certainly sounds like a test to me. Is the thought of God testing offensive to you? Now here's the thing to remember. Not all tests are bad. I know some of you would disagree with me on that. Many parents, teachers, and even coaches, they worry about the perils of competition. And they would rather encourage self-esteem and self-worth because everybody's got to be a winner. So prizes and ribbons for all the participants. Well, true love, we imagine, it does not challenge or judge. But that means you avoid acknowledging that every one of us falls short. See, a test could be viewed as an opportunity, an opportunity to prove that you're just ready to do a task. For example, here, Abram is asked to leave the land and the people that he knew and to go follow God. God was testing Abram's loyalty. We can read on and find that Abram passed this test as he packed up and he followed God. But when he feared people, the people around him more than what he trusted God, he failed the test. 
And then he lied about who his wife was. But God did not give up on Abram. He had a significant role in God's plan, and God tested Abram more than once. Second question, did God test others? In Genesis chapter 2, we read about how our creator God, he made the heavens and the earth, and then he formed man out of the dust of the earth. In chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, it says, The Lord God placed the man in the garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, You may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden, except just that one tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Well, that sounds like a test to me too. See, the very first human being ever created was tested. And he failed the test. A deceptive creature tempted them to eat from the tree of knowing good and bad, but the choice was still theirs to make. The authors of the BibleProject.com described it like this. The difference between the test from God and the temptation from the enemy is that the one who is testing has your best interest in mind. See, God puts a test before humans to see if they would respond with faithfulness or are they going to act in their own wisdom? in disobedience. This wasn't some arbitrary test conducted by a cruel God. The scene in the Garden of Eden and the choice between our own path or abundant life in God is something that all people must face. God designed humans to be co-creators, co-rulers with him. That's what it means to be bearing the image of God. And so by right then, God should test his image bearers to determine what to entrust to them. Moses, he shows up a few generations after Abraham. He led God's people from Egypt to the promised land. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And Deuteronomy 8.2 says that God humbled them by testing them to prove their character. In Exodus 15, it says, The Lord set before them a standard to test their faithfulness to him. He wanted to measure whether or not they listened carefully to him and if they did what was right and if they obeyed. And one of the tests that was provided was he would provide manna for them to eat. And he told them, collect it every day, but not on Sundays. And those who disobeyed, they found it to be moldy and crawling with maggots. Now, we're only the second book into the Bible. We can easily answer the question, does God repeatedly test his people? Yes. Okay, let's focus again on Abraham. Lots of life experiences happen. They're all recorded about Abraham's life. And specifically in chapter 15, we read about how Abraham reminded God that he remained childless, to which God made a promise to him. Genesis 15, verse 5, it says, He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens, count the stars, and if indeed you can count them. Then he said to them, said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram and Sarai, they assumed God needed some help with fulfilling his promise. So Sarai suggests to Abram that her maidservant be something of a surrogate, And so he sleeps with her, and then Hagar has indeed a son. But that plan, it causes jealousy, there's abuse, and a lot of drama. Surprise, surprise. Abram had failed the test of trusting God's wisdom over his own. So God let some time pass, but he did not give up on him. 
Actually, the opposite happened. He gave him a new name to confirm the covenant. Abram became Abraham, which means the father of a multitude. Thirteen years later, the Lord visits Abram, and he's told that the following year, when Abram would then be a hundred years old, that he was going to return. And so Genesis 18, verses 10 to 12 say, Then the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Sarah was listening to this conversation from the tent. Abraham and Sarah were both very old at this time, and Sarah was long past the age of having children. So she laughed silently to herself and said, How could a worn-out woman like me enjoy such pleasure, especially when my master, my husband, is also so old. In December 2022, when I found out that I was pregnant at the age of 45, I went and had my first appointment with the doctor. And after he explained that I would have to have an ultrasound every, sing every two weeks because I was advanced in maternity age, he couldn't help himself. He started to laugh. He slapped his knee even, and he said, oh, people are going to laugh about this. Now, I know that 45 is, of course, not 90, so maybe I shouldn't be comparing my story to Sarah, but I experienced the laughs. Genesis 21, verses 1 through 3, it says, The Lord kept his word, did for Sarah exactly what he promised. She became pregnant. She gave birth to a son for Abraham in his old age, and this happened at just the time God said it would. And Abraham named their son Isaac. Verses 6 through 7 says, And Sarah declared, God has brought me laughter. All who hear about this will laugh with me. Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse a baby, yet I have given Abraham a son in his old age? When Sarah laughed, the Lord responded with, Is anything too hard for the Lord? And he proved it isn't. God was faithful to keep his promise to Abraham. He gave him a son. Isaac was growing up. And with all of that backstory in mind, we come to our text. If you've been flipping around, go back to Genesis 22. Verse 1, again, it says, Sometime later, God tested Abraham. Notice, God tested, not Satan, not Abraham himself, but God, Elohim, the creator of life. This verse clearly makes the point that what follows is divine testing. It's not a demonic temptation. Genesis 22 verse 1 continues. It says, Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied, here I am. See, Abraham's relationship with the Lord has strengthened over his hundred plus years. He knows God's power and God's ability to do the impossible, so he responds when he's called upon. Verse 2, take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much. Abraham's first son, Ishmael, he was not an offspring of the promise. And the clarification that God gives, he's gradual, gradually intensifying terms he uses. It makes it undeniably clear to Abraham that it's Isaac God is speaking about. The son Abraham and Sarah had waited years for. Take Isaac, go to the land of Moriah. Now the land of Moriah, it's a significant place and we're going to talk about that in just a few minutes. 
Verse 2 continues, go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will show you. Now, technically, any offering burned over an altar was a burnt offering. But in more specific terms, the burnt offering was the complete destruction of the animal up in smoke. It was a sacrifice of general atonement. It's an acknowledgement of the sin nature and a request for renewed relationship with God. Now notice here, Abraham did not verbally object to God's command. This is evidence that child sacrifice as a mode of worship was acceptable in that time among the neighboring peoples and the cults. And I suspect that Abraham would not have known that his God was against human sacrifice. Now, later on, when Moses wrote the law, it became very clear, Leviticus 18 and chapter 20, that lists the command very specifically, you shall not give your child by fire to Molech. But the people, they did not always obey. And Josiah in 2 Kings 23, he had to purge this practice from his people. It's easy for me to sit back and say, that's disgusting. But back then... They seem to need the prophet Micah to clarify. And he did. Micah chapter 6, verse 7 to 8, it says, Should we sacrifice our firstborn children to pay for our sins? No, O people. The Lord has told you what is good. And this is what he requires of you. To do what is right. To love mercy. And to walk humbly with your God. Now I heard this account of Abraham as a child. And so I've known the outcome of this story for a long time. And when you know the ending of something, it just makes the beginning a little bit easier to stomach. But I don't want to jump there because Abraham did not have that luxury. And for him, this test was real. And unlike us, he did not know that it was a test. Verse 3 tells us that Abraham got up early the next morning. It's possible that because of the incredible obedience of Abraham, he was up early and without delay, he was just willing to do whatever God asked. Now, my education is in counseling, and I usually try to anticipate the situation and and anticipate how a situation has made someone feel so that I can empathize with them. And I struggle to believe that Abraham jumped out of bed just feeling ready for what he was about to do. See, that type of thinking denies Abraham's humanness. I believe that's more likely that Abraham, he couldn't sleep. So he was just up already. And as each moment passed, he was tormented with the confusion and the pain of thinking about what God had asked of him. And similar to Genesis chapter 12, when God made a covenant with Abraham, once again in Genesis 22, Abraham is told to leave his family, go to the land that God would show him. With what is being asked of him to do, I'm certain He had to just get away from his family because he knew that with what was happening and if he had told them what was happening, they would have tried to stop him. There is no way, he told Sarah. His wife had lived most of her life in disgrace because she was barren. And then at 90 years old, finally, the Lord did what he had promised. She was given a son. She was redeemed because of this son. And if Abraham had told her, God has asked us to sacrifice our son, she would have hidden Isaac. Or at the very least, she would have pleaded with Abraham, don't go, don't do this. So he got up early so that he didn't have to face Sarah. Abraham 
He would have been in anguish. Thoughts just racing in his head. It says he saddled his donkey, he took two servants and his son, and then he chopped wood before he was leaving. I'm going to guess maybe he's not fully all there. Because why not chop wood before you wake your son? Abraham's wealthy and he's old, so why didn't he ask his servants to chop the wood? Or why chop, chop the wood at all? Was there no wood where he was going? He wasn't thinking clearly. Who would be? The text says it's a three-day journey to the place that God led them to. We don't know how old Isaac was, but we know that the text tells us he was capable of walking likely upwards of almost 100 kilometers. He certainly was not a toddler. He was not a preschooler. It also says that he carried the wood for a while. Now, my own son is now 13, and there are times when we're walking away from the baseball field after a doubleheader, and he asks for help. Can you help carry some of my equipment? So, I assume Isaac is older than 13. Nothing is recorded about the conversation as they traveled. It's a long walk to do in silence. I've sat beside someone as they were on their deathbed. And the thing that brought comfort was talking about how the fact that their suffering was going to end. Well, how could Abraham just look at his healthy young son? How could he have any words to say? The only thing he would have been thinking about is what's going to happen when they arrive at the place where God had told him to go. We thank God for our friends and our family members who can help us carry our burdens but there are some trials in life that we must face alone. Abraham, he was carrying the weight of this unreasonable task all on his own, alone with his thoughts about God and what he was asking of him. After C.S. Lewis's wife died from cancer, he wrote about his grief and how it forced him to assess his understanding of God and his relationship with him. He writes this, Bridge players tell me that there must be some money on the game or else people won't take it seriously. Apparently it's like that. Your bid for God or no God, for a good God or the cosmic sadist, for eternal life or a non-entity will not be serious if nothing much is staked on it. And you will never discover how serious it was until the stakes are raised horribly high, until you find that you're playing not for counters or for sixpences, but for every penny you have in the world. Nothing less will shake a man, or at any rate, a man like me, out of his merely verbal thinking and his merely notional beliefs. He has to be knocked silly before he comes to his senses, and only torture will bring out the truth. It's a life and death test. And even that did not pull Abraham away from God, but it actually further developed his trust in God. Last week, Pastor Sam mentioned, if we try to run away from a difficult situation, we'll probably meet the same problems in the new place and still have to solve them. He said, because the heart of every problem is the problem in the heart. Abraham was well aware that God would continue to test him. And I'm guessing he was tired of failing tests. Abram had been asked to sacrifice his son. And of course, wouldn't that actually prevent God from keeping his promise? 
to make Abraham the father of nations through Isaac? Well, he did not need to know how God would fulfill his promise. He simply needed to trust that he would. In moments like this, people should focus on the promises and recount the times in life where God has previously showed up and showed off. I wish Abraham had the Psalm 77 available to him to read while he walked. The psalmist writes this, Psalm 77, I cry out to God. When I was in deep trouble, you didn't let me sleep. I'm too distressed even to pray. And I said, this is my fate. The Most High has turned his hand against me. But then, I recall all you have done. Oh Lord, I remember your wonderful deeds of long ago. They are constantly in my thoughts. I cannot stop thinking about your mighty works. Oh God, your ways are holy. Is there any God as mighty as you? You are the God of great wonders. You demonstrate your awesome power among the nations, and by your strong arm, you redeemed your people. When we are tested, and when it becomes more than we can handle, because we feel forsaken by God, that is when we must remember what he has done and who he is. That is when worship is most difficult, but most important. They arrive at the land of Moriah. Mount Moriah is in Jerusalem. It occurs only once more in scripture, but very importantly, as the site of Solomon's temple in 2 Chronicles 3 verse 1. See, God had led them to where eventually the Holy of Holies was going to be built, the place where God's present presence would dwell. Abraham told his servants, wait with the donkey, we will go further and we will worship. This is the very first time in all of scripture that we have the word worship. Worship, it means to bow down, to lift up the greatness of God. Abraham was to worship God at around the very place where God's people would later gather together in the temple to worship for years to come. And Abraham told his servants, we will worship there and then we will come right back. Some say maybe he was being deceptive. I'm not sure what else he could have said. Hebrews 11 understood his words to be a powerful illustration of Abraham's faith that God was going to resurrect Isaac. And they walked on together. Then Genesis 22, verses 6 through 8, says, Abraham placed the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulders while he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them walked on together, Isaac turned to Abraham and said, Father, yes, my son. Abraham replied, We have the fire and the wood, the boy said, but where is the sheep for the burnt offering? God will provide a sheep for the burnt offering, my son. Abraham answered, and then they both walked on together. Okay, the author just leaves so much up to our imagination, doesn't he? Isaac. He's old enough to carry the wood, but young enough to innocently ask, where's the animal? Abraham's answer, it might have been more of a prayer spoken out loud. May God provide. Or it just might have been the open truth. God will provide the burnt offering. Remove the comma, my son. The words, nevertheless, they were prophetic. We do not have more details about their conversation. Was 
Isaac naive and was he just trusting or did he actually realize what was happening? They continued up the mountain. At some point, I can only assume Isaac realized because Abraham, a senior citizen, took this teenager and placed him on the altar. Come on. Isaac submitted to offering himself as a sacrifice. Genesis 22, verses 10 to 11, and Abraham picked up the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. And at that moment, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Why is it that God waits until the very last moment? Maybe you found that in your own life. You've prayed for something. You've exhausted all options and it seems completely impossible. And that's when God shows up just in the nick of time. Well, he alone gets the glory that way. We're not able to take the credit. He is the way maker. Those are the times usually when people start to take notice. That is when they start to believe he is who he says he is. Notice the urgency by calling him twice. Abraham, Abraham, yes, Abraham replied, here I am. Genesis 22, verse 12, don't lay a hand on the boy, the angel said. Do not hurt him in any way, for now I know that you truly fear God. You've not withheld from me even your son, your only son. It's revealed to Abraham that this was a test. Abraham truly feared the Lord. Many Bible verses mention the fear of the Lord. Now, it's not suggesting that we should be scared of God thinking, ah, he's going to strike me with lightning at any moment. No. Those who do not know God, they might be afraid of judgment, of eternal death. However, for the believer, the fear of the Lord is reverent submission that leads to obedience. It's tied to loving and to serving him. Two summers ago, I was on sabbatical and I decided to spend some time studying the topic of the fear of the Lord. I was telling my parents what I had been reading and my son, who was also there, he spoke up and he said, the fear of the Lord should not lead us away from him, but instead closer to him. Wise words out of the mouth of a child. Here's the reason why he was right. God is holy and he hates sin. So if we hate sin, we will draw closer together. But do we hate sin? In the book, When People Are Big and God is Small, Edward Welch, he wrote, we're more concerned about looking stupid, that's the fear of people, than we are about acting sinfully. That's the fear of God. As a church, we call ourselves sanctus. That is Latin for holy. God is holy, and since we are not fully yet, we will fear the Lord. Psalm 34 verse 9 says, Fear the Lord, you his godly people, for those who fear him will have all they need. Abraham knew he was complete in God. There he was, leaning over his son with a knife when God provides. Abraham just excels this huge sigh of relief as he sees a ram now caught in the thicket right near them. Verse 14, Abraham, he named the place Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord will see to it 
or the Lord will provide. To this day, people still use that name as a proverb, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Abraham feared the Lord, and he knew the name Jehovah-Jireh. That's why he was confident that God would meet every need. And the more you know someone, the easier it is to trust them. So Abraham, he sacrificed the animal instead of his son. Verse 16, this is what the Lord says, Because you have obeyed me and have not withheld even your son, your only son, I swear by my own name that I will certainly bless you. I will multiply your descendants beyond number. Like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore, your descendants will conquer the cities of their enemies. And through your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. All because you have obeyed me. When I realized I was going to be teaching on this story, I was uncomfortable. The reality that God tests his people is something that could just push people away from wanting to know God. So maybe if we just focus on this last verse here, God blesses his people. Well, that's awesome news. And God will provide. That's awesome too. But there's a reason he needs to be the one to provide. If Abraham could always do what he was supposed to do, we would not need Jesus. Abraham is an example of one who had faith and feared God. He also is one who faced many tests and at many times failed. Abraham did not measure up. We do not measure up. We are blessed through Abraham because when he obeyed through his line came Jesus. God blesses us indeed. But what did that cost him? Fast forward to the New Testament. After three years of preaching the words, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, Jesus knew he was about to be tested. He wept and prayed in the garden of Gethsemane. Luke 22, verse 42 tells us, he said, Father, if you are willing, please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Jesus expresses the natural human desire to avoid pain and suffering. It's a test he faced alone. One commentary described it like this, like the servants of Abraham who seemed to evaporate on the day of, of the commanded sacrifice, the disciples have scattered. And a dark hopelessness dominates Golgotha. Peter denies Christ and weeps bitter tears. Judas Iscariot hangs himself. Pilate washes his hands as the crowd in Jerusalem chants for death. The soldiers spit. They mock and beat. Jesus is prepared for death with the same painstaking care, nailed to the cross, with the same grim determination that Abraham used to bind Isaac for sacrifice. I suppose I need to change what I declared earlier, the most rigorous test ever given in all of history, God and his son Jesus faced. Romans 8.32 tells us, Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave up all for us all, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Abraham was tested by being asked to sacrifice his son. He was willing, but did not have to because God provided a lamb. But God, he passed his own same test, and he will never ask of it of us. There is a test that comes to my mind that is sort of similar. 
parents. We're tested in the sense that we have children. They're in our care for at least 18 years. If we raise them, training them in the way that they should go, like it says in Proverbs 22, verse 6, that means we have a responsibility as parents to teach our children what matters to God. It doesn't mean forcing them into a certain set of beliefs or rituals. Rather, it means demonstrating a real faith, one that puts the focus on loving God and loving others. Now, the toughest part comes when they've grown up. An attachment has been created over the years, but once they become adults, a dependency on each other can actually be unhealthy. My oldest daughter leaves for university in a couple of weeks. Of course, I don't have the agony Abraham experienced thinking about sacrificing his child, but I'm still currently processing all the emotions of learning to let go. I'm going to miss her. That's to be expected. But there are questions that we face when we just can't hold on to someone anymore. Is my own value measured by who I am to that person? Will her absence impact my my happiness in the sense that she's the source of it? The test is, Does anyone meet the needs in your life that only God should meet? The test that we will all be confronted with is this. Are we going to live by God's wisdom or our own? Are we going to let our sin rule us or will we rule over our sin? Will we partner with God to bear his image in the world or will we live on our own? And do we trust God to be, as his name says, the provider? To summarize, Will all humans face testing? Absolutely. God's testings are tailor-made for each of his child of God. And each experience is unique. Not every difficult experience in life is necessarily a personal test from God. That's worth repeating. Not every difficult experience that you are facing right now in life is a personal test from God. God's tests They may seem unusual, but they're not always painful. Remember, Adam and Eve, they were told to eat from this tree and not from that tree. God's people in the wilderness were told, collect manna, but only six days of the week, not seven. Also, we must discern the difference between a test and a temptation. Temptations come from the desires within us, and then they're used by the enemy to bring out the worst in us, Whereas a test or a trial that comes from the Lord who has a special purpose to fulfill, they're used by the Holy Spirit to bring out the best in us. I would like to lead us together in the praying of the Lord's Prayer. But before I do, I want to first just pray for each of us that there would be clarity in knowing whether or not what you are facing is in fact a test. Let me pray. Lord God, you are Jehovah Jireh. Your very name speaks to your supernatural ability to provide. And as we think about things that we're facing right now, Holy Spirit, would you please bring clarity? Is it a test or is it a trial that you're allowing us to face? Or is the enemy tempting us? Is he leading us away from you? Lord, would you have mercy? Would you allow us to see the difference? Help us to trust you with all our heart, our soul, and our mind. Amen. And now Jesus instructed his followers to pray in a way that clearly shows confidence in knowing that the Lord will provide. And when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we acknowledge we fall short and he alone meets our needs. So will you join me in praying? Our Father 
in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours now and forever. Amen.